0: Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. For your listening edification, today is Thursday, September the 1st, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, September the 5th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 122nd post COVID show, a new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light Into Darkness. Today is Labor Day, and Labor Day celebrates the social and economic achievements of American workers who built this country. In fact, labor has built everything we have in our house, and in our garages, and that is why we here at Bringing Light Into Darkness pay such close attention to growing wealth inequality and the oppressive outcomes and increasingly challenging life circumstances that it presents to our middle and lower class, particularly in the form of life expectancy and health care access inequality that such gross levels of wealth inequality generates, and that seeks to hide the human misery that is created by our wealth inequality generating long history of bellicose foreign policy initiatives. So thank you for listening to Bringing Light Into Darkness where we seek to reveal what is hidden from American citizens by a mass media owned by such wealth-privileged interests. Also importantly, we also want to remind you that our co-op membership drive begins later this week on Friday September the 9th and runs through Sunday, September the 18th. So please support Co-op Radio by calling in or going to co-op.org, especially this next Monday night from 6 to 7 during Bringing Light into Darkness to support our special membership drive show, and more importantly, to support the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP. So again, welcome to tonight's show. If you listen to NPR and other mainstream media outlets, then you most likely wrongfully believed the Russian bounty story back around June of 2020 that Russians were paying bounties to the Taliban to have U.S. citizens killed. If you listen to mainstream media, you most likely believed with little or no doubt that it was Russia, not elements of the Ukrainian army, that were responsible for the horrific murders of dozens of civilians in Bukha, Ukraine, back on or about the 1st of April. If you listen to mainstream media, you wrongfully most likely believe the claims that Russian troops have repeatedly and deliberately targeted civilians since the Russian invasion began on February 24th, and that Russia has been losing a huge number of troops since the war began relative to the Ukrainian army losses. All of these claims have been shown to lack veracity, yet are widely believed and disseminated by our mainstream media. Tonight, our guest former Marine and Iraq UN weapons inspector Scott Ritter returns to bringing light into darkness to further debunk common falsehoods that we are indoctrinated to believe, such as who was responsible for the horrific April the 9th, 2022 civilian train station bombing in the eastern city of Kramatorsk that killed 50 civilians, and what types of forensics are used to determine that, as well as what to believe regarding the nuclear plant occupation by Russia and the recurring missile strikes that risk a nuclear disaster, as well as the role, mission, and status of the International Atomic Energy Agency that just arrived at the nuclear plant. Scott Ritter also provides an update on the ongoing Kherson counteroffensive launched by Ukraine last week and the role that the United States played in its planning. So stay tuned and enjoy bringing light into darkness. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is Bringing Light Into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Thursday, September the 1st, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, September the 5th, 2022. We are blessed to have Scott Rigger to join us today. Scott, before formally introducing you, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to provide us some updates on some areas of concern. So thank you for that. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let me start by introducing our guest. Our listeners should be familiar with Scott Ritter, but he's a former weapons inspector. He's a writer an author. He's a lecturer. He has a long history with the United Nations Special Inspections Area and was right online with the predictions and the understandings regarding the Iraq weapons of mass destruction that were not there yet. We moved forward with our criminally unjust war in Iraq. Scott Ritter. He was born into a military family. Um, He has a college degree background in Soviet history, which I'm sure is a very small part of his historical pursuits over the years. He's just a very well-informed historian as well. During the 1991 Gulf War, he served as the Marine Central Command headquarters in Saudi Arabia under General Schwarzkopf, and then after that, he left and joined the UN Special Commission on Weapons Inspections in Iraq. Before he resigned, he had participated in over 50 inspection missions. But our subject today is around the Ukraine crisis, and I just wanted to indicate that we have a crisis of information. It's at the central point, I think, of the terrible conditions the world finds itself in our media. Don't act as an independent media. But act and function instead more as a public relations firm for those that take us from war to war and conflict to conflict and call it a foreign policy. And as a consequence, it's very difficult to sort out fact from fiction. In fact, I might add that circumstantial evidence in a criminal case is usually the preponderance of evidence. In other words, what I'm trying to say, there is an abundance of crimes in which you get criminal convictions without having an eyewitness. And when we have this war propaganda that it seems to intentionally suggest that it's one side against the other side's word, that Ukraine makes this claim or that claim and then Russia denies it. Or vice versa. And therefore they cancel each other out. Therefore we don't know what to believe. However, what is left behind is that there is is a large body though of circumstantial evidence. And that presentation is really disingenuous because it leaves that out. And by keeping this circumstantial evidence from the American public, it tries to create a false certainty as it seeks to shape a public opinion that is in alignment with our foreign policy bellicose actions. I just want to give a couple of brief examples and have you address some of them for us, Scott. The Russian bounty story back in June of 2020, the New York Times reported that the U.S. intelligence had concluded that the GRU, Moscow's military intelligence agency, had offered bounties to Afghan militants connected to the Taliban to kill coalition forces in Afghanistan, including U.S. troops. And this is exactly during peace talks, all right? We were trying to get out of the Afghan war there. At least that's what Trump was doing. And shockingly, this is what Democrats and many Republicans were trying to prevent him from doing. And the Russian bounty story was based on these anonymous sources and emerged just in time to seek to derail President Trump's plan to withdraw from Afghanistan at the end of 2020. And Biden referred to them during the debate as a slam dunk finding of our intelligence, but... It was interesting that Trump's presentation was much closer to the truth when he said that they, referring to our intelligence, they didn't think it was real, end quote. They didn't think it was worthy. If it had reached my desk, I would have done something about it. In other words, it was unconfirmed, yet it was presented by our media as just blatant anti-Russian propaganda led by trusted pundits, such as Rachel Maddow. And later after Biden became president. And the bounty story was downgraded to low confidence and quietly dropped. So the bounty story was just presented as absolute fact. And it later became known to be fiction that the Pentagon never validated it as well. And what we call our media time and time again, they promote claims of Russian malfeasance without supporting evidence that later proved to be unsupported just like the bounty story you've addressed this buka deal in which all of these people were murdered that these ukrainian citizens were killed at the hands of russians rather than ukrainians a claim that immediately followed the discovery of these bodies and resulted in the overwhelming belief in the american citizenry that these demons these russians These murderers were responsible for these horrific crimes. You wrote a detailed article providing an abundance of forensic and circumstantial evidence suggesting the likelihood that, no, it was the Ukrainians. Yet the American people are indoctrinated to believe without doubt to this day that this was a Russian act. The Ukraine has repeatedly accused Russian troops of deliberately targeting civilians since the Russian invasion began February 24th. In our meeting with you last month, you very eloquently, I thought, put forth the evidence that showed that, in fact, Ukrainian civilians, relative to other war type scenarios, have been incredibly protected at an unprecedented level during these Russian fences. And then another one to ask you to speak to to start the show was back in April of this year at a train station in the eastern city of Krematorsk that killed 50 civilians. That was immediately also again blamed headlines that the russians had launched this missile attack to this very crowded civilian railway station in which people were trying to escape the violence and it was a horrific deal and apparently on the missile shell casing it said something like kill children or something like that written in russian quote-unquote slam-duck evidence that was russia that that was widely portrayed here in the united states and I think it's really important to not just say that this is a farce and a misrepresentation, but present the evidence that suggests that it was. And in fact, you actually did that in an outstanding piece you wrote back on April 19th, 2022, entitled The Kramatorsk Train Station Attack, The Key to Finding the Perpetrator Lies in This Overlooked Detail. Can you talk about these overlooked details that were not covered at the time? Well, sure. Look, I have a
1: background in intelligence and in forensic investigation. And so two things emerge from that. One, when you're doing a forensic investigation, you you tend to start with the deed and then work backwards. So you don't build assumptions up front. You don't say, the Russians did it, or the Ukrainians did it. You, you say, this is what happened. Something happened. What happened? And then intelligence, you, you're fact-driven, but you are allowed to make analysis that... Is derived from an incomplete data set because very rarely in an investigation or in a uh, intelligence problem do you get the whole puzzle. You just get pieces of the puzzle that you have to sort of move around until you can, until you think you see the entire picture. In the case of Kramatorsk, we know that a 9M79 Tochka U missile, and that's important. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because that's important, struck Kramatorsk and killed a number of people. We we have the bodies. We have the missile. We know this event took place. And so there's no debating that.
0: And excuse me, Scott, but both sides conceded that fact, right? Namely, that it was a Tokka U, T-O-C-H-K-A, the letter U, missile launch.
1: Yeah, nobody's saying that this, this Tokka U missile's attack did not happen. Right. Um, Ukrainians immediately came out and said, well, Russia did it. Actually, what, what really happened is Initially, uh, the Ukrainians came out and said one of our missiles malfunctioned because, see, Ukraine had been firing these 9M79 Tochka-U missiles against civilian targets in the Donbass, and Donetsk, to terrorize the anti-Ukrainian population that lived there. They'd been firing them for some time now. There was a Ukrainian artillery regiment, 19th, I think it was. It might—I might be wrong on that number. Brigade.
0: Uh, yeah, you said the 19th missile brigade in your article. Uh, you said it was Ukraine's only tokka u equipped unit.
1: Um, you know, is solely empowered to fire these missiles. That's what—that's what they are. They are a Tochka-U missile brigade. The Tochka-U, the 9M79, is an old Soviet-era weapon. It's designed to provide battlefield support fires against command and control positions, troop concentrations, logistics areas, things of that nature. And it's relatively precise, but it's an old system. This particular missile, I believe, was produced in the 1990s, early 1990s. You have a serial number on it. That's one of the pieces of evidence that arises, is you come to the missile and immediately have a serial number. the important thing about that serial number is that provides a system of accounting. The serial number is provided to that missile at the point of manufacture. This missile is assigned something called a passport. It's a document that's attached to the missile that follows it everywhere it goes throughout its life. Every time it's moved, the passport's put down. Temperature uh, that the missile is subjected to are put down. You know, if it's maintained, if there's maintenance that takes place, it's put down. That missile normally has a shelf life of 10 years. So if it, let's say it was built in 1991, that means by 2001, it has expired. Now, you could subject it to a life extension program. This would be documented as well. It's not known that Ukraine did this. And the reason why I say Ukraine is, you see, that missile serial number can be traced to a bunch of these missiles that were shipped to Ukraine uh, and were taken into custody by the Ukrainian government. Ministry of Defense. They signed off on these documents. These missiles then go to a warehouse that receives them. The passport, again, indicates that. These missiles are then given to a brigade, uh, orders, and the passport is annotated. The brigade then says they're going to fire it, and when they fire it, they finalize the document and say this missile has been expended. So that number provides the forensics all the way back. The only unit using the Tochko-U, the 9M-79 Tochko-U in the Ukraine conflict with Russia, is the 19th Missile Brigade. The Russians don't use this missile anymore. This missile was retired in the late 2010 because it had expired. It was no longer considered to be reliable. Plus, there were newer missiles out there the iskandir who has a greater accuracy greater reliability and that's what the russians had transitioned to but the ukrainians had not so right off the bat you say well okay it seems that this missile by the serial number is linked to ukraine because of the the pain of custody that that, that number provides and also the forensics you see when the TOTKO-U missile comes in The warhead separates as the missile is finalized in its ballistic trajectory. The warhead separates to allow it the ability to strike the target without a missile stage interfering with the ballistic trajectory, et cetera. And so the, the missile stage follows the warhead, but it's going to fall behind the impact of the warhead. So the warhead will come in, hit, and somewhere behind it, the stage will hit. And the stage generally hits in a manner in which the front of the stage points toward the
0: target and the tail section would point towards the direction it was launched from. Points towards the direction.
1: Well, this is what happens all the time, every time. And when you take a look at this, people took photographs of this missile and the photographs had known geographic points. Known geographic points. So you can then pull up a map and geolocate these points and get the definite direction of flight of this missile. And it goes straight back into Ukrainian-controlled territory where the 19th Brigade is known to operate. So somebody inside Ukrainian territory fired this missile. Mm. It's an indisputable fact of the forensics. And the number on the missile suggests that the missile was in possession of the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military, to the time it was fired.
0: Yeah. And so that forensics is very interesting to me because I remember August 21st, 2013 gas attack that Assad was blamed. In fact, John Kerry said with absolute certainty, it was Assad. And now we know that with almost absolute certainty, it was not a side. I mean, it was just a blatant lie. But a lot of that work that changed that understanding came from Theodore Postol. Uh, Dr. postel's a physicist and missile expert. And some of those same, same types of deals, just the range of a missile, then when it hits, you know, like you indicated, the casing itself will indicate from what direction it came from, and then you could, with that particular missile, it was the the actual range of it could then indicate where it, it emanated from, and it clearly emanated from the uh, rebel-controlled areas at that time, uh, and not the Syrian army. I, I don't mean to get off track, but again, I just want to indicate with all criminal cases, so many of them, there's no eyewitness, and what they do is they use this type of evidence that you're putting forth here, in which you can make inferences. It's it's deductive reasoning. It's and it's incredibly accurate. It doesn't mean it's not right all the time, but it, it's tried an incredible amount of the time. I also just thought, and I just want to re this because last time we had you on, you very genuinely provided the amounts of casualties that were going on and that there were some, I have the quote here, and of course this has changed because this is back in like the middle of, of August, August 15th, I believe, but there were some 250,000 Ukrainian soldiers that have been killed or wounded and 80,000 were dead. And normally you have a one-to-one ratio of civilians to military deaths, but in this case, there was some eight to 10,000 civilian deaths, which is a huge number, no doubt, but it's a one-to-eight ratio rather than a one-to-one ratio, indicating that the Russians are really doing what they can to minimize those types of civilian deaths. Plus you indicated that Ukrainians using these civilian shields, as indicated by Amnesty International and Washington Post, indicated that many of these civilian deaths were largely unpreventable, not due to the Russian tactics, but due to the Ukrainians using these civilian shields. It seems very unlike the Russian approach here to be just randomly bombing a civilian train station to begin with. But anyhow, thank you for that explanation. Moving on. Today, as I understand, the IAEA have finally landed at the Ukraine power plant this nuclear power plant that's been attacked, it's been bombed. This is a 6.7 gigawatt plant. It produces, like, according to the Wall Street Journal, one-fifth of Ukraine's electricity before the war, and it's been receiving power through repaired lines from this Ukrainian energy system, heightening anxiety over the fate of the first nuclear power plant to be occupied during the conflict. And it was almost immediately occupied by the Russians. This Zapriza plant had been disconnected from the grid. It's Europe's largest nuclear plant. This is a 37-year-old facility. Those are just some background things on it, but there were attacks. First of all, there were claims that Russia, instead of using a civilian shield, they were using a nuclear power shield and stocking all this weaponry and all this. I've heard some of your comments. I wanted you to revisit and bring us up to speed on this, but one of them was quite clearly that we have all the satellite ability. We take pictures of everything and anything moving or not moving. And that if there were these weapon trees in that area, we would have that data. And if we had that data, it would be all over CNN and every other major mainstream deal. But again, they say this, we say that, and then nobody really knows. But we do know based on the preponderance of the circumstantial evidence. Can you walk us through that evidence and and what your belief is as to the nature of of who's been attacking and putting at risk this nuclear plant?
1: Sure. Well, let's just start off with a, a couple statements of known fact. Prior to the Russian Incursion into Ukraine prior to the Russian occupation of the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant. This plant had had serious operational difficulties. Ukraine is not a well functioning nation and they have significant or they had significant economic problems, especially when it came to funding the operations of this power plant. As you said, a 37 year old plant, they had to shut down two of the six reactors because they didn't have spare parts necessarily to, to repair them. So even before the Russians, Moved in, two of the six reactors were shut down, not functioning, Uh, not because of anything Russia did, but because the Ukrainians couldn't repair the facility. So that that tells you a lot right off the bat about the, the state of affairs that's going on here. Underfunded. And when you have a nuclear power plant having to shut down because you can't repair it, that's a red flag already. Of the remaining four, I believe. After the Russians uh, occupied, two of these were shut down and, and powered down for safety reasons. And then the the final two have been diminished to they're operating at less than 50% capacity. I believe one of those may have actually been shut down totally because of the ongoing shelling. So we have a situation where the plant is poorly maintained by the Ukrainians. It has a poor level of operational capability. And this is all because of the Ukrainians. The Russians have come in and they have the existing Ukrainian staff operate the facility. They're the ones who are trained to do that. They live in a nearby town, which is linked. The way the former Soviet Union worked is when you have a major enterprise of this nature, it is responsible for the housing, for the education, for the social well-being of its employees. And so, you tend to get literally company towns. And the, the nearby community of, I'll butcher the name, and there go something is, uh, is is where these these people work, and they commute to work. They do the job. They're not being held hostage. This is their job. But you know, I, I would imagine many of them aren't happy about working under wartime conditions. The Russians have brought in because this was a facility built during the Soviet Union, 1977, I believe, and the Russians have brought in the personnel from their own atomic energy agency to. Oversee the operation to basically monitor, make sure everything's done right, everything's done safe, that there aren't any personnel shortfalls, that there aren't any maintenance issues. These are Soviet designed reactors. The Russians have the spare parts, and the Russians are actively involved in ensuring that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is operated safely. There are no shortcuts being taken whatsoever. In fact, I would wager that if the IAEA inspectors who are currently there are are honest, they will be able to demonstrate that the shelling perpetrated by the Ukrainian military aside, the plant is operated in a more safe manner under Russian occupation than it was when the Ukrainian government controlled it. Because the Russians don't have the budgetary constraints, they don't have the spare parts shortages, and they do have the expertise to make sure the plant is is operated properly, safely, etc. Now, the Russians occupied this plant on March 3rd of this year.
0: Scott, before discussing the arguments for the Russian decision to take the plant, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, and we'll be back right after this. Don't touch that dial.